Well, I'm going to invite you at this point in our service to take a copy of the scriptures and turn to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. Last week, we spent our time looking at the fact that uh, Christ is superior to cultural Christianity. And we made the case that uh, God is calling us to not fall for cultural Christianity, but rather to find Christ to be superior. So would you join me now uh, in prayer as we add, ask God to bless our time together this morning. Father, you have caused all of Scripture to be written for our learning. So we would ask you to grant to us this morning that we may hear the words of Scripture, read them, mark them, learn them, and inwardly digest them in such a way that by patience and comfort of these words, we may embrace and hold fast the hope of eternal life which you've given to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So this past summer, Elizabeth and I uh, had the privilege and joy of traveling to Breckenridge, Colorado. And uh, we were looking forward to many aspects of that trip, but we really were going with one main goal, and that was to hike Mount Quandry. Mount Quandry is one of Colorado's 58 mountain peaks that are named that rise above 14,000 feet. So to give you some comparison, Lookout Mountain is listed on Wikipedia, the end all of knowledge, uh, at 2,400 feet. So in order to get from sea level to the top of Mount Quandry, you would have to stack Lookout Mountain on top of itself six times and you'd be to the top of Lookout, or uh, top of Quandary. The hike basically took us all day, but as you can see, the view from the top was absolutely worth it. It was stunning. Mount Quandary is one of the most popular 14,000-foot peaks to hike, but it's also one of the most dangerous because it looks deceptively easy and you don't have to have technical climbing gear to climb it. So that means that unprepared hikers will often go and not bring enough water to make it to the top, or they won't bring enough warm clothing because, as you can imagine, the temperature and weather will tra change drastically in a matter of just a few moments. We were actually told that there are more rescues from the top of Mount Quandry than any other 14,000-foot mountain in Colorado. So without over-dramatizing it, how you choose to hike Mount Quandary matters. Staying on the trail, bringing enough water, what you motivate yourself with on the trail during the hike, all that matters. How you choose to hike will change your experience for the better or for the worse. And in fact, it could actually endanger your life, how you choose to hike, or it could ultimately save your life. In the book of Colossians, Paul compares the Christian life to walking, and how we choose to walk the Christian life matters. How we follow Jesus matters, from how we engage in good works 
to the lifestyle that we choose, to how we participate in suffering, to how we engage in the mission, to how we stay motivated in all of these things on this journey, what motivates us, drives us, and empowers us in all these things truly matters. So if you were to look at the book of Colossians and do a quick survey between Colossians 1.1 and Colossians 2.5, and you were to count all the commands that show up, all of the imperatives, do you know how many you would find? Zero. There are absolutely no commands between Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, and Colossians chapter 2, verse 5. There's nothing to be done. There are only statements to receive and believe. But when you come to chapter 2, verse 6, you find the first command within the book. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. That's a command. Between that verse and the end of chapter 2, there are just three more commands. And each of these is focused on a warning. We saw these last week. They're up on the screen. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. Verse 16, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Chapter 2, verse 18, let no one disqualify you. These are all warnings against bringing anything into their Christianity from the legalism that the false teachers were wanting to bring into the church. They're all commands towards vigilance. They're warnings against falling for any extra biblical regulations in order to follow Jesus. So, there are a total of four commands prior to chapter 3, verse 1. But, when you come to chapter 3, verse 1, the floodgates open up. In fact, if you were to start reading the book of Colossians at chapter 3, verse 1, then you might come away with the picture that this Paul dude is a pretty bossy fellow. He has lots of expectations. In fact, in chapter 3 and chapter 4, just two chapters, one half of the book of Colossians, there are a total of 25 commands. And if you were to take away those commands, which are obviously time-bound and related specifically to just the Colossian church, basically after chapter 4, verse 10, if you were to take away those commands, you're still left with 20 commands that Paul expected his original audience to follow. So this brings up a very important question. Let's ask it a couple of different ways. How do we as a church family biblically and thoughtfully move out from embracing the gospel of grace as it's laid out in the first two chapters to living by that same grace which requires obedience to the Lord who saved us as laid out in the last two chapters? Or to ask it another way, how do we live out of what is true of us in Christ, our being, into what God calls us to do in Christ, our doing? Or maybe to word it even more bluntly, how do we obey God's expectations for those who are following Christ without the legalism of the false teachers that Paul is arguing against? Our answers to these crucial, crucial questions will lead us either into the very legalism against which Paul is warning 
or into license which ignores the commands of Scripture altogether. And neither of those responses is proper. Both dishonor Jesus. So back to our analogy, how we engage with the commands from God through Paul matters. How we choose to live the Christian life, how we choose to follow Jesus on this walk, this journey, this hike, if you will, it matters. So here's the big idea for this morning's message. Following Christ flows from your union with Christ. Following Christ flows from your union with Christ. Or we could say it this way, doing flows from being. Doing flows from being. The title of this message is this, the most powerful union in the world. The most powerful union in the world. Following Christ in a way that honors Him and the gospel and glorifies God flows only from our union with Christ. So the sermon this morning is a pivot sermon. Rather than going directly to the next section in the book of Colossians, we're going to take this one big idea, investigate it that Paul has been developing throughout this book, and then we're going to use it to set up the rest of the book of Colossians and the rest of our study together. So in order to do that, let's ask four questions of this idea of union with Christ. First, what is union with Christ? Second, how do we receive this union with Christ? Third, what are the effects of union with Christ? And finally, why does it matter? So these are the four questions we're going to ask this morning. Number one, what is union with Christ? It's not uncommon in Christian circles to hear talk of finding my identity in Christ. I myself have used this phrase dozens and dozens of times in the last 12 months alone to describe the work that God has done in my heart over the last two years as he has been rooting out idols, as he's brought to the forefront that I used to define who I was based upon the fact that I was in ministry. And if I wasn't a pastor, then who on earth am I? This phrase, finding my identity in Christ, is really a very recent phenomenon. It's less than a couple of decades old. It really became popular since 2000 due to our culture's focus on the self and on identity, self-defining, self-identifying, self-esteem, etc. And I want to affirm that there is certainly good to be gained from general revelation, including general revelation as human beings study interactions and psychology and make observations. I want to affirm that there can be good found in that. However, there's been an unintended consequence for followers of Jesus when we begin to adopt the language of finding our identity in Christ. That consequence is this. The doctrine of union with Christ, which is an unavoidable and clearly biblical doctrine and category, it has fallen out of favor. It's fallen out of knowledge. It's virtually unheard of and unknown. In the words of Galadriel in the Lord of the Rings, 
and some things that should not have been forgotten were lost. Part of what I want, us, want to do today is help us to recover this doctrine for our spiritual benefit and blessing as a church from the book of Colossians. So what is union with Christ? Well, I am so glad you asked. Let's ask some theologians, both alive and dead, who have thought long and well about this particular doctrine. First, let's ask John Piper. John Piper, what is union with Christ? Union with Christ is the reality of all of the ways that the Bible pictures our human connectedness to Christ, in which He is indispensable for every good that we enjoy. No saving good, no eternal good, no God-exalting good, no soul-satisfying good comes to us except as we are connected to Christ. And this union with Christ is not a reference to a moment-in-time event. It also isn't a state that can be slipped into and then slipped out of. Michael Horton, what would you say concerning union with Christ? Well, union with Christ is not to be understood as a moment in the application of salvation to believers. Rather, it is a way of speaking about the way in which believers share in Christ in eternity, by election, in past history, by redemption, in the present, by effectual calling, justification, and sanctification, and in the future, by glorification. The doctrine of union with Christ is one you've already come across in our study of Colossians, the phrase, in Christ, showed up almost immediately. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Paul says, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ, here Paul is using this phrase to describe the sphere in which believers live their lives. Now, just like the Colossians and the Colossian believers live their lives in Colossae, in that city, that was the sphere in which life took place so also they simultaneously lived their lives in Christ. They were in two locations, if you will, at the same time. Likewise, we live in and around Chattanooga, but as followers of Jesus, we also live in Christ. This idea of union with Christ shows up repeatedly in chapter 2. Look at verse 6. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Look at verse 10. You have been filled in Him. Verse 11. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, having been buried with Him through faith in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith. Look at verse 13. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Look at verse 20. If with Christ you died, and he goes on, look at chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, look at verse 3. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The doctrine of our union with Christ is shorthand for all of the incredible blessings we come to experience because of Jesus. So let's ask one more theologian. John Calvin, what is our union with Christ? 
This is the wonderful exchange which Jesus has made with us out of his measureless goodness. That becoming son of man with us, he has made us sons of God with him. That by his descent to earth, he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us. That by taking on our mortality, he has conferred his immortality upon us. That accepting our weakness, he has strengthened us by his power. That receiving our poverty unto himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. That taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself which oppressed us, he has clothed us with his righteousness. So what is union with Christ? It describes the nature of reality for every believer. We have been united to Jesus. And follower of Jesus, that is the case whether you feel that way this morning or not. Question number two, how do we receive this union with Christ? Well, we've already seen this, the answer to this question as well in our study so far, so I'd like to summarize it in three simple phrases. We are united to Christ by exercised faith in the gospel, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, by the grace of God. So let's take each of those one at a time. We are united to Christ by the exercise of faith. Look back at chapter 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Now Paul had already referenced this faith faith back in chapter 1 verse 4 and in verse 5 and the gospel is seen to produce that faith as well as the hope and the love that marked the Colossian believers so without faith in Christ there is no union with Christ it's a fact that many in our culture are looking to tap into some greater experience of cosmic or divine knowledge. And perhaps you are one of them this morning. Sometimes this experience is called Christ consciousness. It's where you are said to tap into a, your higher self as part of the universal system. It's said to be a moment of self-realization and unity with God or with some understanding of divinity. But this type of union with divinity is nothing but a false flag. It's a cheap alternative to what God himself has already provided to anyone who will but trust and follow Jesus. There's no working for it. There's no emptying of the mind and no ritual that you must engage in in order to receive union with Christ. You don't need to pursue some level of Christ consciousness to be united to God. You simply need to exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the sovereign king who died in your place and for your soul, and then you'll be united to Christ and experience all the blessings of that union. So we're united to Christ by the exercise of faith, second describing phrase, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 12 again of chapter 2. You've been buried with him in baptism, 
in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made to alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So in those few verses, you have the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus put forward as the basis upon which we are united with Christ. And this is the good news of the gospel. Remember the definition that we've been repeating over and over again on multiple Sunday mornings concerning the gospel. This is the gospel. God the Father, by His Spirit, saves sinners and restores His creation through the perfect life, sacrificial death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all of this happens by the grace of God alone. So we're united to Christ by the exercise of faith through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by the grace of God. Look at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Union isn't something we can work for or produce on our own. It is something God does within us. And the very faith we exercise when confronted with the gospel is itself a gracious gift from God. So following Christ flows from our union with Christ. Doing flows from being. We've explored what it means to be united to Christ as well as how we are united to Christ. So now let's ask the third question. What are the effects, the effects of union with Christ? For just a moment, I'm going to skim through the book of Colossians, and I'm going to list all of the ways that Paul describes someone who has not yet been united to Christ. Someone outside of Christ. That one is in the domain of darkness. That one is needing redemption from slavery. Needing forgiveness of sin. That one is alienated from God. That one is hostile in his or her mind by wicked works. That one needs reconciliation to God since that one is an enemy of God. That one outside of Christ is dead in sin. And that one has been justly convicted of failing to meet their proper obligations before God. Not exactly a flattering picture, is it? Some of us cringe before this list because we remember what it was like to be outside of Christ. And we can mentally raise our hands and say, yes, that, that is who I was. Or maybe you're cringing because the Holy Spirit for the first time is enlightening you in these moments that this list describes you. But now, from the same book of Colossians, listen to the effects of being in Christ. One who is in Christ is bearing fruit and increasing in the gospel. That same one is full of faith and hope and love. That same one is strengthened with all power, all God's power for endurance and patience. 
That one is joyfully giving thanks. That one has been qualified by God to share in the inheritance of the saints. That one has been delivered from darkness, transferred to the kingdom of God's Son, redeemed, forgiven, reconciled to God, participating in the reconciliation of all things to God. That one has Christ within him or her. That one has been filled with God's presence, given a new heart, given resurrection, made alive, justly acquitted from the conviction of failing to meet all of their obligations before God. That one is participating in the triumph over dark powers and spiritual personalities. And that one is dead to man-made religion, risen with Christ, living a life hidden with Christ, and will appear with Christ in glory. Those are the effects of what it means to be united with Christ. This is a doctrine we cannot allow to remain forgotten. If you are trusting in Jesus this morning, this overwhelming and monumental list accurately describes who you are right now, in this moment. And these are only the effects that Paul mentions in a book four chapters long. Paul will tell the Ephesians that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places are theirs in Christ and Christ alone. The effects of union with Christ are staggering, and it ought to cause our hearts to rise in joyful thanksgiving to God. But if you're sitting here and you are beginning to recognize that you are not in Christ, this union with Christ is not yet yours, if you would not consider yourself to be a Christian, then let me ask you, is the list of those effects compelling to you? Is it attractive to you in any way? Why? Or why not? All this God provides when he unites a man or a woman by grace through faith to his son, the Lord Jesus. And it can be yours this morning if you will simply turn from your way of trying to make life work and your sin and turn in faith to Jesus to save you. In that moment, God unites you to his son. So what is union with Christ? It's a way of describing all of the benefits that are ours through Jesus. How do we experience this union? Through the exercise of faith, through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus by the grace of God. And what are the effects of our union with Jesus? In short, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But our final question is perhaps the most important. Why does union with Christ matter? And this is why this sermon is a pivot sermon. All of what we have said to this point are demonstrably true statements regarding the one who is in Christ. If we were in grammar class, it's okay, some of you are triggered, just take deep breaths. But if we were in grammar class, we might call these indicative statements. Remember that? Indicating what is reality. And some of you are like, no, I don't remember that at all. It's so great. But beginning at chapter 3, verse 1, we transition hard into imperative statements, commands, expectations of God for the one who is in Christ. 
of the one who would walk the Christian life out of their union with Jesus, the one who would walk worthy of the Lord Jesus. And how we pivot from what is really real, what is truly true, our union with Christ, to what we really must do, our obligations before Christ, how we pivot from the one to the other really matters. Now, at the end of chapter 2, Paul makes an interesting and brief comment. After warning the Colossian believers against legalistic religion that would add anything to Christ, he says that these extra-biblical regulations, quote, are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They are worthless in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He then moves on into chapter 3, and he lays the ground rules for something. And what is the something that he's laying the ground rules for? Stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These legalistic man-made additions to Christianity are of no value. But then we pivot hard to this is what is of value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So what is the difference between God's expectations of those who are following Christ and the unbiblical expectations of the false teacher that Paul is arguing against? What's the difference between the two of those? How can he say, ignore the commands of those false teachers, but do all these commands? Like, what's the difference? Are these just arbitrary lines that we draw in the sand? Well, the answer between the answer to the question, what is the difference between these legalistic man-made expectations and the expectations of God upon a believer is found in one phrase. Union with Christ. Every command that Paul will now give from this point on is rooted in this reality. Those who are receiving the command and are to act upon the command are doing so solely out of their union with the one who loves them, lives for them, died for them, was raised for them, and is coming again. Following Jesus is not a free-for-all. Look back up in chapter 1, verse 22. Why has Jesus reconciled us in his body by his death? In order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach. Those phrases, when used together like that, were used throughout the Old Testament specifically of sacrificial offerings. Jesus is preparing his people as living offerings to his Father, holy, blameless, above reproach. And we're going to see from chapter 3 on, Paul is going to start to meddle with us and meddle with our lives in some really uncomfortable ways. 
but we must, must remember that he's doing so as a representative of the Lord Jesus. The same Lord Jesus that we confessed concerning this morning, he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the one who created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. He is the one for whom they were created. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the one who's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the one who is to be preeminent in everything. And so Paul, as representative of that Jesus, calls you and I to live our lives a certain way out of our union with Christ. Now, I've stated our conviction before as a church in these words. The gospel is for every person and the gospel is for all of life. When the gospel is at work among us as a people, Jesus will have preeminence in our sexuality and in our speech, in our desires and in our decisions. He will be preeminent in our relational interactions and our internal self-reflections. He will be preeminent in our unity and in our diversity. He will be preeminent in our singing and in our thanksgiving, in our marriages and our parent-child interactions and the discipling of our children. He'll be preeminent in our workplaces, our prayer lives, and our public lives. Practically, Jesus will have that preeminence. It is what the gospel does. But God brings about that preeminence practically in our lives every day through the means that he has provided And what is the means of Jesus being practically preeminent in our lives? Our union with him. Doing flows from being. How we engage with the commands of God through Paul in the rest of the book, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1 next week, and how we relate to all of the commands of the New Testament matters. Following Christ flows from from your union with Christ. With God's help, may we not allow this doctrine to be forgotten. Let's pray together. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have given us your words of life today from the scriptures. And I pray that you would take these truths that you would plant them deep in us, that you would shape and fashion us into your likeness. We ask that the light of Christ and our union with Christ would be seen today by our acts of love, by our deeds of faith, our words and posture of hope. Father, fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. We praise you for filling us with the means possible to follow Christ by uniting us to him. And we ask all these things through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit reigns forever and ever and ever. Amen.